When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's cold train is on. Hello there, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. And that was John Prine. Uh, the first song is called Paradise, a rather old song from the early 1970s, uh, written and performed by John Prine. And the second song there that phased out was John Prine performing his famous Angel from Montgomery with Bonnie Raitt, um, who actually made that song famous uh, in her version. He has written a lot, um, and he died earlier this week from the COVID virus. So I thought it was worthwhile sort of pointing out his legacy and hopefully you enjoyed the songs and i'll finish out this podcast with another one of his songs that he actually wrote and came out with around 2018 it was one of the last things that he did he died at the age of 73 and we will miss him all right so getting started here today uh, sorry to be bleak at the beginning of this, but I'm going to try something new today rather than doing some multiple choice questions from I Am Essentials. I'm going to actually walk you through a case that I saw recently on the wards, and hopefully you can stop, pause, generate uh, some 
uh, problem representations, as well as differential diagnoses to help you uh, if you ever see a case like this in your futures. So this is basically a morning report case that hasn't been presented at morning report because we're not having morning report because of the shelter at home orders and the fact that the residents and students uh, cannot really gather in groups to do morning report. So uh, look at this as a morning report case as you're going through it. Uh, don't hesitate to hit the pause button and talk to yourself or if you have another student nearby or resident or maybe even you can do Facebook or Google whatever that thing is where you get together Google Hangout I think it's called um, and try and work your way through this case. So the chief complaint is altered mental status. And the history of present illness is that this is a 76-year-old man with a history of end-stage kidney disease on dialysis. And the kidney disease uh, was thought to be secondary to hypertension and diabetes. He had been on dialysis for a number of years. And he also had a history of degenerative joint disease of the knees, systolic heart failure, hypertension, the diabetes that I mentioned, and a distant history of cocaine abuse as well as inadvertent opiate overdose, um, which was uh, last happened about five years prior to this. But he was brought to the emergency room by ambulance for altered mental status. So what I'd like you to do, based on the information I just gave you, is to pause here and consider what your differential diagnosis would be in a man who is elderly on dialysis, has diabetes, systolic heart failure, uh, and a distant history of substance abuse. So pause there. All right, so the history of present illness, as best we could obtain it, was that he, uh, this was obtained by phone from the patient's daughter uh, who would come in daily to cook and clean for him but did not dwell with him. He lived by himself. She said that when she had called the patient that day, the day he came to the emergency room, to check in on him, he wasn't making any sense and was making many nonsensical comments. At one point, he said there were terminators in his home trying to kill him, and in another uh, conversation later that day, he claimed that he was already dead. Uh, the patient normally lives alone at his home, performs all of his own activities of daily living. Uh, his daughter became quite concerned and called 911 paramedics found the patient to be quite confused, only oriented to self, and repeatedly stating that he was going to die or possibly even had died. His blood sugar and O2 saturation were normal when checked by the paramedics, and they brought him to the emergency department. According to his daughter, the patient had gone to see his primary care doctor three days previously for a painful pruritic rash on his right anterior and posterior chest. His doctor diagnosed herpes zoster and started gabapentin and valacyclovir. The patient underwent his usual scheduled dialysis one day prior to presentation, and there were no reports of odd behavior. In the emergency department, the patient was oriented uh, only to self, uh, was alert but unable to give any meaningful medical history. He adamantly denied headache but indicated that his vision might have been blurry. So pause here and consider what you'd be thinking based upon the patient's chief complaint and the history of present illness that you have so far.
because the more interactive this is, I think the more you'll learn from this case. So don't hesitate to go to the books or go to uh, MD Consult or wherever to look a few things up about what you'd be thinking, because that will help you learn more. His past medical history was extensive, but included end-stage kidney disease due to hypertensive and diabetic nephropathy, uh, which usually required hemodialysis four times a week. He would go on um, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and he had been showing up at his dialysis sessions as scheduled for the past few weeks. Had a history of systolic heart failure with an ejection fraction of approximately 45% by last echo. Hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, obstructive sleep apnea requiring CPAP at night. History of multiple thromboses of his AV fistula necessitating chronic anticoagulation therapy with warfarin. Distant history of cocaine abuse approximately 20 years previously. And he had a history of inadvertently doing an opiate overdose um, due to some oral analgesics he was taking for chronic right shoulder pain as well as bilateral chronic degenerative joint disease of his knees. And he'd had two visits to the emergency room for these so-called uh, overdoses, but the last one was five years prior to admission. Also had the history of degenerative joint disease of the knees. He'd had an upper GI bleed in the distant past, unclear what uh, that was caused by. And then there was some question of Crohn's disease in his medical record, but we could find no verification of this and no recent reports of uh, Crohn's activity according to his daughter or his medical record. His past surgical history included a partial liver resection after an auto accident many years previously. And he'd also had placement and revision of his left arm arteriovenous fistula uh, approximately three times in the past. Social history, he was a former 15-pack year smoker but had quit 14 years prior to admission. He was a previous six-pack a day, that's a beer, <laughs> a six-pack of beer per day drinker, but quit 20 years prior. And he previously used cocaine and methamphetamines, but there was none in his history for the previous 20 years. Allergies included isoniazid, which causes a rash, and rifampin, which causes abdominal pain. Social history, he lives in his own home. His daughter does his shopping and cleaning for him, but he does all of his other activities of daily living. He has no HIV risk, HIV risk factors, and there was no HIV test on file that we could find. Medications included aspirin, 81 milligrams per day, atorvastatin, 20 milligrams per day, calcium acetate, 667 milligram capsules, two tablets three times a day. Midadrine was listed in his medications, but we could not find uh, whether that had been filled recently um, and we were not sure uh, whether he was taking it. Omeprazole, 20 milligrams per day. Oxycodone, 5 milligrams with acetaminophen, 325 milligrams, aka Percocet. One tablet every eight hours as needed for right shoulder and bilateral knee pain. 
valacyclovir and gabapentin for seven days beginning three days prior uh, to admission, warfarin one milligram per day, and he was on his CPAP um, for his obstructive sleep apnea. Physical examination on admission revealed his vital signs with a temperature of 37.1 degrees centigrade, blood pressure 159 over 72, pulse 84, respiratory rate 18 and unlabored, O2 saturation on room air was 97%. In general, he was an elderly obese man laying on the ED gurney. He was making bizarre writhing movements of his head and his neck and asking quote, what those really nice things floating in the air are, end quote. Uh, but he was cooperative, but very confused and oriented to self only. H-E-E-N-T, his pupils were equal around reactive to light and accommodation. His neck was supple. There was no sinus tenderness. Uh, there were no scalp lesions. Uh, he had normal oropharynx with moist mucous membranes and no lymphadenopathy throughout his neck, supraclavicular axillary regions. Cardiovascular exam revealed distant heart sounds with irregularly irregular heart rhythm, normal S1 and S2 without S3 appreciated, a 1 to 2 out of 6 apical blowing systolic murmur radiating to the axilla, was present, as well as a 1 to 2 out of 6 left lower sternal border murmur, uh, which would increased with quiet inspiration and decreased with quiet expiration and, and radiated to the epigastrium and right lower sternal border. Jugger venous pulse was approximately 7 centimeters above the right atrium, although he had a fairly uh, prominent neck circumference, so it was a little hard to tell. Pulmonary exam uh, was clear to auscultation, and the remainder of the patient's pulmonary exam was limited due to confusion and inability to fully cooperate. His abdomen, balsons were present. He was obese, soft, and non-tender to percussion and palpation, and there was no hepatosplenomegaly. The extremities were warm and well-perfused without clubbing or cyanosis. His skin exam was remarkable for the fact that at the right anterior and posterior chest, a knot crossing the midline in the T5 dermatome, there were many crusted lesions and occasional vesicular lesions on an erythematous base. Uh, otherwise, his skin exam showed the presence of a transdermal dialysis catheter, also known as a TDC, which was palpable at the left upper anterior chest. It was non-inflamed, non-tender. Neurologic exam. Uh, this was a confused man oriented only to self, following some commands, but apparently actively hallucinating. And he had bizarre writhing motions of his shoulders and his neck uh, and voluntarily had full range of motion uh, of his neck when asked to flex his head and touch his left ear to his left shoulder and his right ear to his right shoulder. He had no Koenig's or Brzezinski signs, and there was no nuchal rigidity. Fundi could not be examined due to the patient's inability to cooperate in keeping his eyes still. Cranial nerves 2 through 12 were intact, his speech was mildly slurred at times, and he had five out of five muscle strength throughout his upper and lower extremities. 
sensation was grossly intact throughout his extremities, and his reflexes were symmetric uh, bilaterally in the upper and lower extremities, and his uh, testing for Babinski sign was negative, i.e. he had biplantar flexion. Cerebellar exam was difficult to perform, but while he could not do finger-nose-finger, he was able to rub his heel down his shins uh, on each leg, uh, consistent with a finding of no ataxia. Laboratory exam revealed a sodium of 139, potassium 5.1, chloride 102, bicarb or CO2 of 25, BUN was 42, creatinine of 7.4. These were around his average values in between dialysis sessions. His glucose was 151, his calcium was 9.1. Alkaline phosphatase was normal at 60, AST normal at 21, ALT 21. How do you like that? Both of those, same number. Total billy 0.5, albumin 3.3, slightly low, INR, elevated at 1.7. Remember, he is on warfarin. Acetaminophen and aspirin levels were both obtained and were negative. A complete blood count revealed a white blood count of 9.2, hemoglobin 12.2, hematocrit 38.6%, MCV 85, platelets 225,000, the differential on his WBC was normal without a left shift, and his lactic acid level was slightly elevated at 1.6. Other labs, blood cultures uh, times two sets were drawn and later uh, remained negative. He had a point of care flu test, which was negative. An electrocardiogram, and by the way, a COVID-19 was not obtained as it felt to be extremely unlikely that he had COVID. But having read more about COVID uh, and COVID-induced encephalopathy, I might have obtained that test in retrospect. His electrocardiogram revealed atrial fibrillation with a heart rate of 84. There were slight lateral precordial lead ST segment depressions which were unchanged compared with prior ECGs and the EKG was otherwise unrevealing. Chest X-ray, no pulmonary edema or infiltrates. He had a non-con head CT performed, I should say non-contrast head CT performed, which was unremarkable. So what I'd like you to do is to pause here and come up with a problem representation for this patient based on the history the physical exam and the labs that you have so far. So hit the pause button and ponder this case. Okay, so what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna throw my problem representation at you that I had floating around in my brain at the time I saw the patient. So what I put was elderly man with end-stage kidney disease on chronic hemodialysis presenting with subacute progressive alteration in mental status consistent with delirium four days after being diagnosed with shingles. That should actually probably be three days, I think. But he had it for at least four days or he wouldn't have gone to the doctors three days prior. Or uh, I guess another way 
you could write your problem representation is elderly man with end-stage kidney disease on chronic hemodialysis and distant history of substance abuse, since you might want that in there, presenting with subacute progressive alteration in mental status consistent with delirium three or four days after being diagnosed with shingles. And then, you know, I have to, you have to kind of think about whether his newly noted atrial fibrillation is relevant. Um, up to 10% of patients with sepsis will develop atrial fibrillation at some point. He could be septic, that could be related, or he's just stressed for some other reason. I chose not to include it. Another thing you could potentially include or might have in included in your problem representation is the fact that he's on a lot of medications. So polypharmacy in the elderly is sometimes a cause of delirium. Uh, and you also maybe a pertinent negative you could have included in your problem res representation was that he had a uh, non-focal neuro exam. Because I think that does help if you're thinking about stroke and things like that. So, um, so a lot could be happening. He's elderly, and he's effectively immunocompromised due to his hemodialysis. He doesn't, these patients don't get classically listed in the, hemo, uh, sorry, in the immunocompromised category, but I always think of dialysis patients as having a, a higher rate of infection, particularly bacterial infections like Staph aureus. So he essentially has a delirium, and there are many causes from infections to toxins and medications to strokes and vasculitis. So what I'd encourage our students to do is uh, to pause here and then to read through the delirium chapter in Adam Saifu's Lang textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis. By the way, I have no financial interest in recommending this textbook to you. Uh, but it is available on Canvas, uh, so you can actually go into this book because we do have it through the library. So use that text to generate your differential diagnosis, but I really want you to try and narrow this list down from a huge list of possibilities to what you think are the top three or four things you think are going on with this patient. And maybe it's just because my brain is tiny and I'm not good at fitting a lot of information into it or articulating that information very well. But generally speaking, generating a list of 15 things this could be using one of these fancy mnemonics like move stupid or whatever, rarely helps me as much as thinking about what is most likely based on the history, the exam, and the labs. Uh, and I think that sometimes generating a long list in a patient like this can just further confuse you and sometimes can actually lead to the overordering of tests that you really don't need to make the diagnosis. So hopefully you've checked out Dr. Saifu's book, The Lang Textbook Symptoms and Diagnosis. Um, lots of good things in there. Um, lots of good prep for step two as well as for the step two CS as well. So the hospital course, uh, our patient was admitted to the hospital by the internal medicine overnight resident who was concerned that the patient was taking too much gabapentin in the setting of end-stage kidney disease as well as uh, with concurrent oxycodone uh, therapy, i.e. that Percocet therapy for some chronic shoulder and knee pain. So her uh, review of the outside records revealed that um, the provider that saw the patient uh, 
placed him on 300 milligrams of gabapentin uh, three times a day, um, which uh, would, would have been probably an excessive dose in a patient on dialysis. But when she reviewed this medication by phone with the patient's daughter, who was quite sharp and actually had pictures of all the bottles on her phone of the medications the patient was supposed to be on, she said that the pharmacist had changed the prescription and that the patient was only taking 300 milligrams of gabapentin at bedtime. So uh, still the resident was concerned about polypharmacy, so she stopped his narcotic analgesia um, also held the gabapentin, and the valacyclovir was continued for herpes zoster of his right chest, given the fact that the patient was intermittently complaining of discomfort in that location. So this patient was staffed in the morning, and a diagnosis was made. Uh, so I'd ask you to pull out your nickel and put your nickel down on a diagnosis, because otherwise this is no fun if it's all passive. So you gotta, you got to you got to hang things on a diagnosis here. So our differential diagnosis was delirium due to polypharmacy. As I mentioned, that was the resident's leading thought, um, including narcotics and gabapentin in the setting of end-stage kidney disease. Uh, the narcotics not being as big an issue as the gabapentin, of course, um, due to the kidney disease. Uh, herpes encephalitis was definitely strongly considered, but a literature search revealed that nuchal rigidity and fever are very common in this disorder, even in the elderly. And these, this patient had neither uh, nuchal rigidity uh, and, nor did he have a fever. So this lowered this concern for us somewhat, but it was still high up in the differential diagnosis. So an LP, and by the way, the herpes encephalitis etiology being clearly that he could have um, activated his herpes zoster and it went to his central nervous system. And just because it's not disseminated over various dermatomes throughout his body doesn't mean that he couldn't have herpes encephalitis. So an, a lumbar puncture was discussed as a testing possibility but given the very low pretest probability of an infectious meningoencephalitis, the fact that the patient was on anticoagulants, namely the warfarin for uh, his uh, chronic thrombosis of his uh, AV fistulas, and that he was confused and would likely need to have the LP done under general anesthesia or at least conscious sedation with anesthesia standing by, it was felt that this procedure was not immediately indicated and potentially the risks of doing the procedure outweighed the benefits. Now, of course, we could have reversed the anticoagulation and gotten the procedure under general anesthesia, um, but um, we just didn't feel strongly enough about the need to carry this out. I think some people would have, by the way. This was fairly bold on my part. So a thorough review of his medications was carried out, and this review revealed that the patient was prescribed 1,000 milligrams of valacyclovir three times per day versus the recommended dose in a hemodialysis patient, which should be 500 milligrams orally after each dialysis session. So he was on 3,000 milligrams a day versus what should generally be no more than uh, about 2,000 per week. So um, a diagnosis of valacyclovir neurotoxicity was made and the patient underwent hemodialysis daily for the next three days. 
He continued to be delirious with hallucinations after the first hemodialysis session, but by hospital day four, he was almost completely back to normal. He was discharged from the acute hospital on hospital day number five in good condition. So um, a couple, just sort of thinking about um, the postmortem of this case, thinking about what we did well and what we could have done better, because it's always good to consider this. Um, in retrospect, I think we were being fairly bold to not have done an lumbar puncture on this patient, given that herpes encephalitis was a prominent diagnostic possibility early on. However, in addition to the risks of the procedure in this confused and uncooperative patient, it was felt that his blood and CNS levels of valacyclovir were so high from four days of virtually toxic doses that he was effectively already covered for a diagnosis of CNS uh, herpes encephalitis. An additional test that could have been sent out if we had obtained CSF would have been a 9-CMMG level. And what uh, CMMG is carboxymethoxymethylguanine. And this is a byproduct of valacyclovir and acyclovir metabolism. This would have, if elevated, would have clinched a diagnosis, um, but being a send-out test, not often ordered, it probably wouldn't have come back before the patient was discharged from the hospital. So potentially a pricey tests that wouldn't have changed our management at all. So we didn't feel strongly about doing the lumbar puncture to obtain 9-CMMG, or I love saying this, 9-carboxymethoxymethylguanine levels. So the patient's statements to ambulance drivers is just sort of an interesting sidelight of this case. Um, his statements to ambulance drivers and his daughter that he was already dead or may have been Actually, that may have been a manifestation of something called Cotard syndrome. Cotard syndrome, that C-O-T-A-R-D apostrophe S, was described by a French physician in the 1800s and is a, basically a delusion that the patient thinks he or she is dead. And this is most frequently described in patients with mental illness. Um, in one case report, the patient who had bipolar disorder repeatedly kept asking the hospital staff, the nurses, the doctors, and so forth to release her from her locked psych unit so she could be placed in the morgue with the other rotting cadavers. Cotard syndrome has also been described in a patient with a cyclovir neurotoxicity as described in a case report from Duke Medical Center in the American Journal of Medicine. I believe that was either 2014 or 2016. So suggested reading for this case, if you're interested in learning more about acyclovir and valacyclovir neurotoxicity, can be found by searching valacyclovir neurotoxicity, acyclovir neurotoxicity, and as well as Cotard syndrome, if you're interested in the delusion that a patient actually thinks that they're dead and their flesh sometimes is rotting. So final teaching points in this case, while there are many causes of delirium in elderly patients on chronic dialysis, a meticulous medication review should always be carefully performed. Valacyclovir, which is a prodrug of acyclovir, acyclovir, and famcyclovir all need to be dose-adjusted in the presence of kidney disease. It's okay to use these to treat herpes zoster, which is a very bothersome condition for patients but you just have to think about how it's metabolized and 
one of the few situations you'll get in trouble with these medications it is in the setting of renal failure. So I hope that you've enjoyed this case. That's the end of it. And I'll be back hopefully with another case sometime in the next oh, five to seven days. I have a, another rather thought-provoking case that I wanted to present to all of you. So I just want to usher you out of this podcast with a song by John Prine called Summer's End. I thought a sad but rather, um, I don't know, telling goodbye by John Prine, again, who died at 73 years of age from the coronavirus earlier this week. We'll keep remembering him. The swimming suits are on the land just drag. I'll meet you there for our conversation. I hope I didn't ruin your whole vacation. Well, you never know how far from home you're feeling Until you've watched the shadows cross the ceiling Well, I don't know, but I can see it snowing In your car, the windows are wide open Just come on home Come on home No, you don't have to Be alone Just come on home Valentine's Break hearts and minds at random that old Easter egg ain't got a leg to stand on. Well, I can see that you can't win for trying. And New Year's Eve is bound to leave you crying. Come on home. Come on home. No, you don't have to. Alone. Just come on home. The moon and stars hang out in bars just talking. I still love that picture of us walking. Just like that old house we thought was haunted Summer's end came faster than we wanted Come on home Come on home No, you don't have to be alone Come on home Come on home you don't have to be alone Just come on home